teach teach subjects and um, also like a, I guess a program director where help um, write the curriculum and build the content for a couple of bachelor programs at the at a at a uni and um, help manage the staff and student issues and all sorts of things like that so half admin okay. for the week and then half uh, teaching yeah okay that sounds i mean is it enjoyable i would i would not know what it is on that side of the university <laughs> uh, look you know it is enjoyable when it's a real time moment with someone and helping them learn something that is complicated and you figured out is like a really kind of altruistic kind of um experience and moment um the admin stuff not so much it's pretty uh you know you'd be shocked as to kind of how much um how difficult and uh universities are notoriously kind of large ecosystems of um you know uh departments and processes and requirements and management and it's a really kind of complicated beast to run so uh, initially a lot of kind of frustrations i had even with you know you'd think oh why don't they do this better and then you kind of realize why and it's like god you guys are really it's tough for everyone um (laughs) and so i'm you know chipping in to try to try to make processes easier but certainly um certainly complicated yeah okay fair enough well let's get back to uh i mean let's straight into like the questions and everything and i think the first question before going more in depth is very basic it's kind of well why did you like you go through all of the uh, phd side of your life why did you then choose to do the art as on a digital format first of all to like document all of this in digital format and then post it as an nft instead of something else yeah uh, i think it was pretty natural kind of um uh, progression um was making art and posting it online you know probably 10 years ago um and uh you know was just doing it as kind of an expressive output uh, and then kind of naturally, you know, have been swinging between the kind of artistic and scientific and psychological documentation and kind of just swinging between those kind of different spaces and eventually, uh, yeah, did some research and study and then kind of swung back into a more kind of expressive route through some fortuitous chances with, um, some individuals that I met that kind of encouraged me to, to uh, turn some of those artworks into NFTs. Okay, fair enough. So how did you get to the point where, like, did you already have a background in art before you started making, like, the documentation of uh, hallucinogenics? Or was they kind of, were they correlated? Uh, they were probably correlated, you know. They... Um... They definitely inspired a kind of an expressive route to come out inside. And um, I didn't really have an artistic background before, you know, experiencing kind of encouraged and 
inspired is probably a really good word for that. Um, the desire to kind of document some really beautiful and curious and interesting things that I saw. Um, but yeah, that they were definitely the, the initial departing point. Okay. So before that, were you already in that like process of like university bachelor's masters and all of this, or like, where does it kind of situate itself in your uh, life? Yeah. Like start very young that I started with the psychedelic stuff. Um, so I was probably about 15 when I started, you know, playing around and trying different things out and had a really strange encounter that, that kind of changed the directional track of everything for me. Um, so yeah, I was still in school and, uh, very naive of anything in life at all. And, um, particularly that, that kind of experience. Uh, and it just really rocked my boat. You know, I just really, it was a real game changing, um, life altering moment in time. Um, and I had no context for it. I really couldn't even articulate what happened. It ended up, you know, really being logged as an internal experience. Um, and was kind of in this real weird limbo land of trying to tell other people about what happened and try to understand it and try to figure it out and really wasn't able to get any answers anywhere about what happened. It was just kind of this, you know, uh, the, the image coming to my head is this perfect, just big question mark. Like, you know, it's a real kind of just strange incident that happened. Um, and so, yeah, then I, um, so I was very young and it took me a number of years to kind of even get my bearings about that people, you know, I guess that, that there's still mysteries left on, on earth. You know, I was kind of in a pretty middle-class um, family that made me feel like most things were resolved <laughs> and there was a pretty clear plan of what to do in life and it's not too much funny business going on. And then, uh, you know, it's kind of rocked the boat as to, oh, hang on, there's actually a lot of mystery left here on earth. And, um, and this is one of those. And, you know, humans are constantly engaged with mystery and with the unknown. And, you know, there's many, many areas in life, you know, philosophy, religion, there's kind of lots of areas that engage and uh, interact with the unknown. So it's not entirely a new kind of idea but this is another niche little area that perhaps may give us some insight into other unknowns and other strange areas as well uh so knowing that it was a clear um abnormality that no one knew about it was a really easy choice to to kind of choose what i would research if i was to continue higher degree education and uh, so it was quite a natural evolution that came out of an experience. Did you ever understand the first encounter? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, no, it's it, it's the exact same question that I'm 
that that I've repeated many times and it continually kind of results in the same outcome which is really strange like it kind of throws you back to being it throws me back to being to that not only that that age that that kind of mindset when I was 15 but also you know what happened when I was 15 was it threw me into a timelessness as though I had had died and kind of gone into another dimension literally um kind of had just broken through a little veil and popped into another place uh that was really stable um and so yeah it's like that that continually is possible um and i've only kind of no matter how much um you throw at this thing it's just like water off a duck's back like almost nothing sticks and you just kind of I think there's a great quote, like nature will not give up her secrets easily. And I really think that, and I really think that's a really beautiful way to kind of, how do we find the seams on this space that we're in? Um, it's very, very challenging, you know? So in that case, are there any other encounters that you've understood or is it just continuously attempting to understand each one yeah it's uh, i i understand zero percent and i, I quite literally okay. <laughs> um not even like 0.001 percent because um it's yeah it's so so mind-boggling mind-bogglingly strange uh that I, I couldn't even make an inch of progress on it and kind of, I, I guess maybe the only inch of progress is that you kind of have to reframe everything you know. So every belief system you have, you end up needing to reinvestigate it. And doesn't mean you need to kind of drop your own belief systems, but you do need to, um, you know, truly kind of interrogate where the root of that belief system has emerged from and whether or not it's been uh, adopted from somewhere else or whether you're basing that belief system on a on a true foundation that it's that it's always real you know something maybe it's something like telepathy right like um oh you can't telepathy isn't real like we can't send messages just back and forth to our to each other's minds um, but then you kind of experience it and but your brain is saying that's not real and this kind of constant tussle between experiencing something in real time and, you know, and then the kind of next flip on all that is, oh, you've just made it up, right? And, um, and then you've experienced it for real and there's kind of all these kind of cascading layers of, um, you know, which, which to be honest, is just insanity for, for the West. It's just, um, if you go out anywhere outside of the Western kind of little pocket of society, uh, there's many cultures around the world that kind of will adopt these things that ex- go outside of our own belief system. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's the only progress I've made on, on understanding any of this, these shenanigans is 
I've uh, unpacked a lot of my own belief systems and I'm probably more neutral as a position on on many of the things now, um, having experienced things that kind of break the model of what I thought was possible. So would it be that the you have experiences that are counter that counter the belief systems or beliefs you've had in the past, which then trigger self-reflection on where those come from and what they were? Is that how Correct. it works? Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. So I was wondering if it was more of a conscious process of saying, oh, there's so much shit happening in these experiences. I have to rethink what I'm doing, but it's a lot more direct. Uh, yeah, it's a significantly more direct thing. Is there any belief system that you would share that was like radically changed? Uh, yeah, I think... Um... There's levels, right? <laughs> and um, there's really strange ones right out there that are, feel more private, you know, like I am very vulnerable to share those because it's quite, because there's no context provided when I do share it. It's just kind of, oh, that, 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 that kooky guy now believes that thing, right? Whatever it is. Um, but I think, you know, um, I've consistently experienced experienced so that the lowest levels right are there is a consistent kind of visual hallucinatory space that has really strange geometry um it's a constant kind of very colorful almost like cathedral like stained glass window geometric space of things that you can see that's just really extremely common um and uh, inside of those spaces, the next kind of belief system up the chain of strangeness is uh, there's a bunch of things that are pretty intelligent and alive and kind of moving around and interacting with you. Um, that's like close encounter of the, you know, third kind or something. And then, and then they talk to you and then they tell you things. It's like the, you know, close encounters of the first kind. Um, and, you know, you kind of initially think it's your mind imagining things, um, which, you know, of, of course it totally could be, but it's just really kind of difficult to pin down whether it is or isn't you, whether they are external or not external, Um you know, the things they say feel autonomous. They feel separated from you. Um, logically, who knows why or what they are? Not sure, but all I know is I'm interacting with something that's kind of uh, sharing its own perspectives on a lot of things that I don't know much about. And I'm kind of interacting with it and learning from it. Um, even stranger up the pipelines are really strange timeline shifts, you know, um, the, you know, UFOs, aliens, there's, uh, and, and really weird timeline stuff. Like it's just, you know, it's hard to kind of talk about, but, um, the feeling like things, are messages are getting sent from the future. 
which literally sounds like uh, some Terminator shit, but um, it's like, I don't know, you go to, you go look at quantum physics and time is really malleable and slippery and, um, yeah, to be truthful and faithful to the experiences you had, even if you're just documenting your own insanity, um, is, is, you know, pr- probably the only way to kind of go down on the ship like, like Jack Sparrow. So. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in those interactions that you have, how conscious are you? Like how aware of it are you and how much can you control it yourself? Oh man, you're just absolutely exactly like you are right now. Like there's no, no drunkenness, like not even like a beer, you know, like not even, you know, not even had one drink of kind of um, tipsiness. It's, you're as straight, straight as an arrow, just suddenly shit scared and, you know, as frightened as you can possibly be and trying to figure it out. Like you're just kind of stressing out, trying to uh, get your head around what's going on and it's happening so quick and so blindingly um, abnormal that you, you can't catch up. So you just kind of keep letting go and letting go over and over and over. It's a, but, but you're very consciously thinking, my God, I have to tell my friends about this. Like, this is, who are you? (laughs) Um, yeah. Holy holy shit. Okay. Would you, I mean, if it's that scary, would you call it a pleasant experience in any way? Wow. Not, not really, man. Like it's fucking (laughs) terrifying and, you know, you have to be really be, to be honest, at the peak mental stability. You know, you have to be really, you have to be able to go, it's like bungee jumping or something, right? Like, you know, if you're absolutely having a terrible time in life, you don't really go bungee jumping just to like throw your heart rate into, you know, an absolute schism and experience some wild thing and then come back. And maybe it helps some people, but it's not really that safe to do that. Um, you should be really in kind of a very stable mindset to be able to then, you know, expand your container of what's possible radically and then come back and be able to integrate it, which, um, you know, it's been my whole life journey really is trying to integrate a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I, I, I'll often have flashbacks throughout the day of, you know, things that have happened and someone will say something and I'll learn more about old experiences, you know, I'll, I'll be able to integrate something more and more. Um, yeah. As, as these things, as time goes on. So would you, well, why continue doing it if it's an unpleasant experience? Is the like advantage that you have from all the learnings worth that experience that like fear and everything how do you reconcile both sides yeah it's a good question you know it's um i uh i yeah i think there's like this really deep innate quality of being a human that is about being an explorer and to engage the unknown you know i think it's almost like an evolutionary kind of quality that we must continue to seek more 
we cannot rest on our laurels of where we are now. We must continue to expand the frontier. And if we don't, that will be the indicator of death, you know, of our civilization. Because, you know, part of Sleeper just wants to, you know, put on some tunes and scroll around on Twitter land and like bounce around and just do nothing, right? Like, but then, you know, I kind of catch myself in the mirror and I realize, man, like, you know, you've been given a, there's an honor and a duty to be a human and um, you need to do this. This is, you know, for me, this is really about honoring my karmic path and I just landed somewhere. I landed in Australia. I landed in this experience that kind of it came to me or I attracted or whatever happened, but here I am now and I'm with it and uh, I will engage with the mystery face-to-face and become friends with it and learn as much as I can. And, you know, one of the ideas of a shaman, not that I'm really a, a shaman, but it's someone who goes out there and brings back something for the tribe. Like, you know, the idea that you, this isn't just my own hedonistic pursuit. Psychedelics are very, very different than a lot of other drugs. Um, Many other drugs are kind of for your own internal pleasure. Oftentimes they do help connect and, but, but there's, you know, different classes and types of drugs. Um, psychedelics and particularly kind of, I don't know, big ones are really engaging with a bit of a, a mystery. Um, so yeah, I try to, try to, try to honor my path and think that there is, I genuinely do think that there's a lot that we can learn that would be very helpful, um, for a really wide range of applications not just about mysteries and unknown stuff, but I really think there's a lot of direct applications, you know, like one of my theses is um, that the root of kind of that the, one of the most important and hidden or not hidden, but most um, unexplored and least understood areas is the imagination. And there are a lot of words that describe the imagination. There's, uh, you know, invention, there's mental imagery, there's imagination, there's dreams, there's ideas, there's novelty, there's, um, you know, and they're, what they're all describing is really the birth of, of something new out of, out of an existing pool of, of things, um, and, you know, about everything, every industry, whether it be maths or science, um, you know, engineering, art, all of it actually really relies on the imagination. Every single thing you see around you kind of flashed into someone's mind at one point and it was kind of birthed out. And so that process of thinking of something new in your mind uh, we actually are very, very poor at discussing that process. We kind of just intuitively recommend people to do it or we just expect people to do it or we just talk about 
the step that happens just after the idea you had in your brain. Um, but uh, we actually don't talk about the mechanics of the imagination very well and kind of the neural engineering of the imagination, the kind of processes that one can engage with to like a gym, you know, expand their capability of being good imagineers. Um, so I think, yeah, there's certainly a, um, a lot of research that we need to do on mental imagery slash imagination. And I think it's because we just treat stuff like dreams and, you know, dreams and imagination and hallucinations is just all kind of woo woo stuff. And it's, uh, it's had a, it's, it's tough to study, but also it's had a kind of a poor, um, research history. Memory has had quite a lot of research history, um, because it's, you know, it's seen as kind of a very functional item. But strangely, imagination and mental imagery are quite poor. Um, and psychedelics are very helpful in this because they kind of show uh, an extreme application of the imagination uh, or, or, or mental imagery and that, that space. You know, it's just like an extreme example, a bit like the Large Hadron Collider or something, right? Like here we are in a really kind of unique situation for, for the imagination. So, so yeah, I think um, everyone uses imagination, you know, and often we, I strangely see how we talk about artists as the only ones who use the imagination. And, and so it's not true. It's just um, artists are kind of have lent into that, that process and have become very good at it. Um, but everyone kind of intuitively has and does use their imagination all the time, every day. People who even, you know, got friends who say, oh, I haven't got a very good imagination, but um, I could point out 50 cases where they're really good at it. They just kind of, it's just kind of more a linguistic trap that you don't really think, they don't think they're good at it. Yeah. Fairly fairly hard to get a clear definition of what imagination is and i guess it depends how it manifests itself in every different person right yeah i think so i think there's definitely you know at some point the crutch of the word will just not be helpful um i think the generation of something new it's often seen as a an image in in the mind's eye um but but yeah the 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 creative thought process is, yeah, the problem. This is the problem with words and just just doing it, you know. But yeah. yeah. I mean, is there, so about all the research that there is behind imagination and everything, would there, because the way I, I'm in the like scientific field, I do mechanical engineering, a lot of things you kind of ex- come to expect from the science you learn, right, in physics or in math is that, you build a model to be able to predict what happens in the future with accuracy, right? So would you ever theoretically be able to reach a point where through studying imagination, the mind, like MRIs, all of these different things, get to a point where you could actually explain 
how imagination works and maybe predict it with precision? Like, do you think that would ever be possible? Or is it mm. something else? Mm, I think that's a good question. Like, again, you probably got to keep whittling down the question a bit. So, you know, take take the JPEG game, like um, an AI art, right? So like AI art is very, is almost like a mechanical imagination. It's um, It's coming up with new ideas based on prompts of things we've never seen before. Um, and we don't know what the end outcome will be, but it kind of imaginatively came up with a solution. Um, you know, and that, that's kind of starting to tag the process of, um, creative divergence and, um, you know, combinations of existing elements and recombining them into a new, uh, combination. And, And you can, you know, with uh, programming, you can just kind of spit out. Literally, if you ran, you know, uh, Mid Journey just all day, every day on a supercomputer, you would just spit out literally a quadrillion pieces of artwork, and every artwork might theoretically get spat out, right? Um, so you could completely dominate um, imagination's output. Uh, but there's not really that much of a difference between complete coverage theoretically or applied because we're never going to look at 10 trillion and whatever it is, a quadrillion billion. Um, uh, so, and then the other is you're actually kind of describing the process of combination. So a more kind of generalized algorithm of what an imagination might be. Um, yeah, it's either kind of probably going to be complete coverage or or a generalized algorithm. Um, I think you see create, you know, I think you see glimpses of, you know, how we would think um, in a lot of software applications. Um, but I think that there are qualities about how we think that are, that, you know, maybe unique to, to really, um, yeah, that may be really quite unique and that we haven't really understood them very well yet. That makes sense. It's just like the way you explained it there, like relating AI to it makes you kind of think, I mean, if you look at, if you, if imagination could kind of be predicted and you could map it all out into models and everything for all of humanity, the, just the thought of that is slightly terrifying that everything in like, that basically the human mind isn't a mystery anymore, if that makes sense. Hmm. So I think, I think it's, it's uh, tempting to think that way, but I think it's, it's probably like the chat GPT thing now, like you're like, wow, the chat GPT is here and like there's no more need for humans and like we almost jumped to the we're almost packing our bags like so quick um we've got to put up slight defense to just the complete takeover rollover um so the slight defense might be you know uh you could just now run software that just changes every single pixel in a thousand by thousand pixel grid endlessly right and that would theoretically just come out with every single artwork every single photograph a photograph of your foot of your cat that you once owned you know 
20 years ago. Like just everything is contained inside of a theoretical space. Uh, and that, that that's a completeness theorem on imagery. So every single artwork, every single possible new artwork is, is contained inside of a complete um, set, no matter how large that is. You know, if you just chose a, a random pixel by pixel amount. Um, so it's all there. And, you know, the ChatGPT thing is, is kind of, yeah, and, you know, mid-journey and all that, they're kind of curious tangent points. Um, but I think, yeah, they'll, they're just kind of slightly, um, they, my fear is they will lead us off track. I think they're very cool tools and they, we should continue to explore them more and more, but they will just lead us on tangents and not really push us to the type of thing we should be studying that probably better spend our conservative energy on. Okay, so I don't know why like my mind just goes off on this tangent and it, it comes back to the interactions you've been able to have while on hallucinogenics, which is do these because you have these thoughts on AI, right? And I kind of want to, I wonder if those interactions that you have are more of a like universal nature on like wider questions of human nature or can they also be about like current events or what's happening to you in your personal life? Is it mostly one or the other? Is it both? Like, they, could you potentially talk about AI in one of those interactions? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it, it, psychedelics, uh, the experiences are pretty like just a deeper dive into the lens, into the kind of, um, you know, just like we were saying before about the, the root of your belief systems and showing you that, um, you know, showing you what you believed in may not be true. Um, expanding your experiences so that you suddenly have to change your constituent kind of beliefs. Um, so yeah, you can certainly kind of try and engage with it at an AI level. Um, the, the strangeness is it's like going up to like a, you know, you go up to a dog and you're like, hey man, have you seen the movie End of Days? And it's like, what? Like, you're kind of trying to like jam in a random thing with another living being. And so there's this kind of, it, I've tried to kind of figure out things in the past and um, been really humbled as to like, do you know I'm alive and that you should just engage with me rather than overlay what you think you should figure out on top of this experience. You know, like if you went and met, um, I don't know, someone who really inspired you and then you started talking about just things that weren't important or you weren't listening to them. Um, so yeah, I've, I've often been humbled to just kind of just learn from me. It's an often kind of thing that they'll mention and say, uh, just stop, stop trying to figure it out on your own and watch what I'm doing. And then let's start from there. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure, I'm sure you could figure out more about AI through, 
through that, but generally these entities and beings are um, uh, you know, so conscious and advanced that it would be kind of a missed opportunity to really just disregard those those conscious beings in that moment. Okay. I'm just going to interrupt for half a second. Apparently your mic is rugging again. It's going back to the staticky thing. I don't know if you can fix it like you did earlier. Okay, let me try. If that works. Okay, let's go. Thanks, Pino, for the call, by the way. Appreciate it. So when you have these interactions with beings, are they are they both like people that you potentially could like real life people? Is it also more transcendent beings that you can't really associate to to anyone in real life? Is it both? Is it neither? Uh, no, they're definitely like transcendent beings. <laughs> they're not um they're not like my uncle Harry or uh not like my dog or anything like that. They're like, yeah, they're kind of very classy, strange, uh, knowledgeable kind of what you would imagine and kind of a different type of intelligence to be. Um, yeah, but they're extremely difficult to kind of pin down and, and talk about what they, you know, what they are, but this very conscious kind of autonomous doing their own thing and then we'll engage you in a very kind of direct manner give you kind of strict wisdom or give you context about what space you're in try to very quickly teach you something um it's kind of a, a rush but um yeah very very direct in the things that they know how can you know they have good intentions in teaching you things or educating you and all of this yeah like a part of this man is about being really neutral you know and um not just uh consuming or believing anything that you're told in that space uh it's a lot of it's about trying to engage and begin a bartering or a discussion process of learning uh, oftentimes I've traded things. Um, you know, I've traded time in my body for wisdom and knowledge. Um, and yeah, it's, but that's only after kind of a long, you know, discussion or a lot of kind of figuring out with, uh, with a certain kind of being. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very case by case basis. It's kind of like walking into a, into a pub, you know, you kind of scope the room and some seedy guys over in the corner. This guy at the bar seems pretty nice. He's been quite, quite gentle and kind. He'll buy you a beer. You know, it's a, it's a case by case basis. What do you mean by the, when you said, when you mentioned trading time for knowledge? 
Yeah, this is, I shouldn't have said it. I knew it. I regretted it straight away. Um, look, I think. Uh, if you don't want to get it, it's cool. No, it's cool. I think I like it. it's, um, yeah. you know, I think one of the things is they, there is a, that consciousness is also looking for experience in what it's like to be a human, you know, and what it's like to be on this side. Um, and so by having autonomy to kind of view through the suit I'm wearing, it's able to kind of acquire knowledge from this perspective and in kind of like a sacred and controlled manner, you can kind of allow them to come through and look through your suit and in exchange for some, you know, knowledge and perspectives from their suit um, there's this kind of interchange of, of, of energy and frequency and perspective that happens. Very, very complicated, very strange, you know, very, um, you know, really hard to wrap your head around what's going on at the, but, um, but that's, that's what it feels like. Can I go more in depth on that or would you rather skip over it? No, it's cool. I mean, this is, this is what it is, right? Like this is, there's a lot of people I find when they, and even myself, I think it's, there's a stepping stone to getting up to these bits in talking about psychedelics and experiences on psychedelics. It's, I think to the many people outside of the space, it just seems like it's a, um, like a movie or something that you watch and then you kind of see some things and you kind of come back. But it's very entangled. You know, these are long, long trips I'm having, you know, whether they're six hours, eight hours, 10 hours long in a dark room, sitting on the floor with one candle, you know, and just engaging with a plant medicine that's been sacredly used for thousands of years. Um, and really trying to hone in on the edge case of weirdness to see what happens and to learn as much as I can. Um, so, you know, four hours, six hours in at a really peak ecstatic state, some really, really interesting things happen. Some really kind of, that's where the kind of fragments of everything you knew kind of start to dissolve out. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, like mushrooms are a really common one that, uh, at a point in time, they begin to feel fairly conscious, you know, that there's kind of a, the mushroom spirit will come through or the San Pedro spirit will come through or the ayahuasca spirit will come through. Um, but you know, mushrooms are, well, I'll, I've often had many kind of experiences of, um, engaging with their, with them and and trying to learn learn about them and who they are and, and so forth okay so so you haven't only done dmt right has that been like a major point of your of those experiences or has it really been a bit of everything uh no dmt has definitely been the kind of focus point it's the one that works the most crisply cleanly persistently and no fail 
and it's like a SWAT team, like you're just fucking in another space and then you're back out after 10 minutes, you know. It's, um, it's almost too good to be true. The, the other ones are much more like lengthy, long waves of engagement. Um, you get a lot more time, but, but trade-off often the peak kind of barrier leaping potential. So I often feel like I can leap barriers much quicker and easier with the DMT um, than having to kind of struggle wade through them, through the other ones. Okay, because that's what I was going to mention, because it seems like you're doing so much. And from what I've, like, from my research, DMT will last, like, 15, up to 15 minutes. But you have a lot of others, like mushrooms, that will last, like, four hours. Or I don't think you mentioned LSD, which is, like, 12 hours. Yeah, so... definitely. LSD is okay. Um, I think I've really tried to focus on the organics, um, even though, you know, but, but LSD is... Uh, very cool, but just kind of not, not being where I've focused attention on. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so that's, dude, it's, it's actually really crazy. I mean, in all the, the learnings that you have, right. What kind of learnings are they? Cause there's, there's so many you could have, I doubt they're giving you a marketing crash course, right? So what kind of things do you learn? Uh, like, I think this, I think this is a loop of the things we mentioned at the start, but I think it's, you know, um, this is what happens when you die. So learning about the death and birth kind of incarnation cycle, um, learning that there are multiple and higher dimensions, learning how to think, learning how to see learning how to see in multiple uh, viewpoints and angles at once. You know, I've had many experiences where suddenly I can see almost like in 50 different perspectives at once, like just the craziest fucking um, type of visual experience you could ever imagine. Uh, showing me how everything's connected in the world you know, and that there's not one single thing that isn't connected to everything else and that there's a really beautiful kind of magic that weaves through all of the mundaneness that we engage with, you know, so that there's nothing in the world that's um, uh, not full of spirit or not full of uh, a magicness. Um, even the cup of tea on your table, it's it's as uh, kind of throbbing with spirit as a church, you know, and the ability to kind of tap into that at will is a really um, beautiful ability that you kind of are able to cultivate through, through many experiences. Um, so yeah, lots about life and death, lots about perspectives, how to think, how to see who you are, you know, that um, who you think you are, you probably have a lot of beliefs about who you think you are that are, are that may not be true, and to you know, an encouragement to go investigate investigate those things, you know. And all all the art I make is kind of like you know, 
even the titles and the stories and the descriptions and even random scenes that I've done, they're all like this tapestry of these rich otherworldly experiences. You know, they're kind of all about taking that whole huge world of things that I've experienced and, um, you know, trying to tell part of those stories. They're almost like home videos of, of, uh, of a hidden world. Yeah. Would you say the art is a, like somewhat of a, of a copy paste of one of the scenes that you see or a replica of what you're seeing, or was it more of you attempting to translate the entire experience into an artistic piece? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I th there's a number of key pieces. Of, there's some key pieces, a much smaller percentage that are trying to directly document a moment in time. Some of them are really genuine attempts at trying to do that. Some of them are, you know, kind of like, like there's a beautiful piece called Complex Daydream and it's like, that's what it is. It's like a complex daydream. And, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about the art, but I, but one of them is that, um, you know, all the experiences I have come through no matter what medium I'm kind of touching. And they all have this kind of twist and spirit and uh, strange aesthetic that's uh, drawn from the experiences I've had and from that, that space and the way that the things look over there. Uh, and so, yeah, this, the strangeness is I'm actually potentially documenting more truth through the meanderings than the attempt at, you know, a real crisp Polaroid snapshot copy of that exact moment in time. Um, I've actually kind of flipped a little bit in thinking that I've actually probably captured more similarity and resonance of that space in some of the works that are just kind of meanderings that, that go down a, a, a bit of a daydream. Um, it's always still in there. It's always still in there. You know, it never kind of goes away. Yeah. If that makes sense. I, th I think it does. I'm not completely sure. Cause I mean, I can't, I can't say that I'm, that I can relate to it. Right. But yeah. I think it makes sense. Yeah. somewhat. <laughs> that's cool. You can't vouch for it. Yeah. And that, that's probably the exit <laughs> of, it, of it always, you know, and actually ironically, that was like the, um, the entire thesis of the PhD, right, was, well, who can, who can vouch for it? Um, and how do we, even if there's 10 people in a room who have experienced it, how do we actually vouch? How can we get consensus on this um, to begin to start trying to figure it out? So consensus and, and vouching is very, is a crucial kind of puzzle piece to the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, related to that, like the first thing I was going to ask you related to that was, have you, I mean, actually this kind of goes into, with have you, like discussing it with other people who've 
done these similar hallucinogenics, have they shared similar experiences to you? Are they, and in, in what what are the similarities? I guess because maybe they see different beings, but they get different lessons, or they have the same lessons, different beings, things like that. Like, and are you even able to? compare and contrast the different experiences you've had when it's so hard to put them into words? Well, yeah, that's kind of the problem, right, is that um, one person will say, oh, I saw these angels and they came down in this bright room. And other people will say, I saw these beings or these entities or I saw this face coming out of the walls. And they actually all may have been seeing the same thing or, or not. Um, so it's, it's kind of one of the problems is the words you use for things gets really tough to kind of start drawing correlations. Even when you say, I saw, I was in a tunnel, um, there's by definition an infinite amount of tunnels. You know, there's, there's wide ones, there's short ones, there's tall ones, there's twisty ones, there's curly ones, there's bright ones, dark ones. Um, you can generally kind of help with, you know, a tunnel's helpful in a description. We can kind of make some progress, but there is a kind of point in time where it just kind of peters out as to not being helpful. Um, so, yeah, it's like uh, I haven't really found consensus uh, um and I, I cannot tell you how complicated the things are that I, that you see. So um, a tunnel is like just a drop in the ocean. You know, imagine watching, you know, all of Netflix on fast forward and then being like, so what did you see? And you're like, oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> I saw like... Uh, there was all these people running around and it was, I don't know, almost just like a complex dream when you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh my God, I was in that whole world. And you start, and it's almost gone as, you, as you're speaking it out loud. And uh, I think there's a kind of memory resistant, I think there's an inbuilt kind of cognitive process that actually shuts off access to the memories um, because it's too strange how uh, how consistently your memory disappears of, of these experiences. I think it's just kind of beyond the capacity of what you uh, have, have a container for and have an understanding and context for. And so when you don't have that, it just kind of disappears in the end, you know. Has that like capacity improved over time? Uh, yeah, it actually has. That's a good question, and you you definitely get your eye in more, and you get more familiar with you know the patterns, and you go, oh yeah, I've seen this thirty, fifty times. Oh yeah. Uh, you're able to retain much better um, details just th simply through experience of, of a kind of practice of it. But yeah, I've definitely found my capacity to remember has increased over time. 
Okay, yeah, because I, I was going to ask you how you remembered all of it in one go, because I think I've had, I had one experience with LSD where I was, I had these thoughts that were very much like cyclical. I didn't realize they were cyclical at the time, but basically at one point I was with friends and I was like, dude, I'm saying the like most interesting shit in the world. I need to record this so I can hear it back later. And so I recorded it on my phone. And, uh, and at the end of all of it, I look at my phone and I had like what a six hour recording of every roughly five minutes me saying, dude, we need to record this because it's really fucking awesome. So it's just like, it's that thing where it's like a fun story as a first time. I don't know if it's something that is normal or not, but at the end of the day, I don't remember any of it at all. And I'm like, was it, was it awesome? Or was it just something? I have no idea. Mm, I think that's pretty, um, pretty standard, you know, behavior. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, to the outsider, it seems just like lunacy, right? And even if you were to video record it or audio record yourself, it's probably, you know, you know just like the, the you're a degen on the web, but man, you're a degen in real life. Like if you're just curled up in a ball, like just rolling around, like just saying bullshit. Um, but internally, what's going on for you may be an extremely potent and religious experience, you know. You, uh, and so it's very, you know, the, the translation of that, it may take you years to kind of unpack the kind of what happened with the loop, you know, getting, getting stuck in a kind of peak and trough loop cycle. Um, so, I, you know, I've certainly experienced that as well, these kind of looping behaviors. And, you know, I think what that's really doing is, um, you begin to, you know, you, you study me mechanical engineering, like you begin to look at the neural engineering of how cognition works. You begin to start understanding the architecture of the, the brain and the mind and who you are, you know, that you are a construction of thoughts in a sequence and a series and you're actually a little computer machine. And... Um, if you tweak the machinery, like if you just connect this wire to this one, suddenly you're in a loop and um, that might just be a kind of neural activation kind of in a certain spot that's kind of heating up physically in the brain and adding these kind of energetic waves that are triggering little loops. Um, but normally we just walk around thinking I'm this kind of person that's not a construction. Um, and what you're doing is starting to tweak and play around with the machinery of mind. And uh, there'll be some winners and losers <laughs> in this process. There'll be the guy who's just just stuck in the loop for six hours or eight hours. And we, you know, then we figure that out and then move on to the next one. And hopefully next time you can say, yep, this is a loop. I'm going to kind of diffuse the energetic wave kind of bring it back to stability and then kind of realign it and move it on or something like that, you know? Um, but yeah, I think, you know, like when they began neuroscience, you know, a lot of it came out of the war. So people would get shot in the head and they'd get shot behind the ear and then suddenly they couldn't see any color <laughs> or, you know, 
they couldn't remember any names of anyone or they couldn't see any faces or, and they're going, oh, right, well, that part of the brain must do this and this part of the brain must do that. And, you know, this is the greatest kind of mystery around is, is beginning to tap in and explore the, the machinery of, of mind. Um, and, and even when you do a lot of that, you kind of still realise, wow, there's a ghost in the shell, you know, there, there's still something moving around in there that's really kind of super mysterious and, and amazing. And um, that's what I think is so, that, that's kind of a, a yeah, the a next level of real, real fascination is once you kind of tweak all these areas, then actually you may be able to connect with the spirit of, of the mind or the spirit of who you are and does that spirit transcend through the body? You know, can you escape the machinery? I mean, that's what Buddhism, that's what many kind of pursuits of knowledge are about is escaping the machinery of the construction of who you are and the types of beliefs and, um, you know, pains that you go through. You know, the idea that life is suffering and that idea that life is suffering, that may be a kind of faulty mechanism of the architecture of mind, but the way that the brain has been programmed for pleasure, that it has actually been kind of, you know, begun to be pr programmed in incorrectly. And, uh, you know, the pursuit of Buddhism is about trying to escape the programming uh, that is that has been evolutionarily kind of hardwired in, and so Buddhism is really about this battle between the machinery of mind and the spirit, the ghost in the shell. Um, so yeah, yeah. I just had like a flash to one of my very. It's very low. I mean, not low, but like cheap. Um, just one of my literature classes, we were talking about Moby Dick and they have the whole like theme about like the machinery and also just interconnectedness of people. This actually kind of matches what you were saying. This is, it's very weird for me to relate a high school class I didn't want to listen to, to something I find very interesting. Oh, that's cool, um, man. I never connected to Moby Dick, but everything's connected. So I think all, all, all roads lead to Rome, you know, so. Somehow. <laughs> Yeah, it's because they have the whole me mechanic side and they talk about it a lot through the lens of the captain and then through the lens of the crew, they have a lot of interconnectedness. I can literally remember quotes from them, okay? <laughs> Flashbacks to high school. Um, at one point you mentioned, you like you just like as a glimpse, you said a religious experience and I kind of wanted to ask is, does this give you any perspective on the different religions that there are or the different spiritual practices that there are? Does it make you more religious, less religious? Is there? Oh yeah, definitely, man. Like it's, you know, it's a very private endeavor, you know, but um, I feel extremely spiritual. I feel like, you know, I kind of have to, something I've kind of only begun feeling recently is this kind of just extreme overwhelming desire to just kind of like to, to worship 
<laughs> like to just like give in to this divineness. And it's actually like when I look at the the Islamic tradition and that they kind of need, they have this dedicated room and time per day to just like pray to God. Like there's this extreme desire to connect to the higher power, you know, whatever that is. Um, so, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I don't really have a religion that I'm following. It's more as a spiritualism or a connectedness to something, to something more. Um, but it's extreme for sure. It's like very, very rich and um, fiery inside. You know, it's something that um, yeah, it's just this feeling of a of of something more than the mundane. You know, the rejection that this place is just rocks and you know just a, a just a dead end, and that there's there's more going on. And and I, I really think like the the word I resonate most with is mystery, you know, because I tr- it really it's a good word because it really kind of the very first door is like I don't know anything about this thing, I really don't. I know zero percent about it. All like all I know is that there is this kind of door to something else, um, and beyond that is is all encompassing and all. Uh, yeah, all, all interesting. Yeah, dude, it's, it's a lot. I mean, you have, you have all of these different experiences that I, I'd say they like very clearly radically change your life, right? But at the end of the day, is it something that you recommend that you would recommend to someone to like attempt it or try delving into it? Or is it not something like, I don't really know how to how to ask this because you have all this change. Is the change something you would recommend, or is it something that should only be brought to certain people? I guess. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I have multiple perspectives on that. You know, one is I never want anything like that to be gatekept, and really kind of really a fervent believer in that. You know, there's been a lot of gatekeeping done by. <laughs> many law enforcement agencies around the world and, you know, that I'm scared that we've missed out on something that was important to us. I think, you know, you can apply this in many different ways. You can become, a, you know, just a, a, a drugger who's kind of sitting at home and not really, it's not really helping their cause or, you know, it's, it can pretty easily turn into something that's, not helpful um but it's a tool you know like a hammer right and you can build houses or you can bash someone over the head with it it's it's uh it's a tool and one of the things is i think something like dmt it's endogenously produced in the brain so it truly is in everyone anyway and but we we end up building these really large stories around it saying that it's really foreign thing and no you know you should just not do that because that's not normal or not natural or something and I don't know I don't know <clears throat> many things about it you know um I certainly all all I know is my path and um 
my path has been very hard. It hasn't been easy. Uh, part of the difficulty was learning and um, engaging with these things at a really young age. So I really wish, you know, I think if I was 25 or 30 and then had it, I feel like that would be a much more sensible approach. I feel like if you've got a stable context around you, if you've got friends, if you've got some family, if you've got a stable home, you know, then, then those are good things to have. If you're really stressed, if you're really depressed, then it's not a good thing to have. You know? um, it's pretty simple, but, you know, for me, my, my experiences now maybe once every, you know, three months, every once every six months, I don't drink. I haven't had a beer in, you know, probably five years. Um, I don't smoke. I don't do anything. I'm like a, a crispy clean, um, except every now and then I will have an extreme heroic dose and just dive full head blown into the capacity of what this human container can do. Um, but yeah, I don't have any other kind of addictive behaviors other than like maybe Maccas. Um, <laughs> it's like from stress from work Fair or enough. something, you know? Okay. Um, on, on a significantly more basic uh, question, because it, it's true that it's gatekept by a lot of government agencies, and I, to, to my knowledge, and I and I don't know anything about Australian law, DMT isn't wouldn't be legal in Australia, right? Uh, no. It, now it's a curious point, but DMT that's synthesized, extracted out of the plant, is illegal. Very illegal. You would get you know, on the same charges as heroin. Um, but it's the national flower of Australia and it's on every single street around where I live. It's in this... Really? <laughs> it's, the, it's the acacia tree. So the Australian uh, sporting teams, are is they wear the green and gold. Um, that's what Australia wears in sporting events. And, but that's from the acacia wattle tree which is this yellow little flowers on green leaves. Um, so anyways, it's, it's the irony, you know, this is just crazy drug laws that are really old that haven't really been investigated that, you know, were just like, we need to ban all DMT. And they even ban, tried to ban all plants that contain DMT uh, and to the you know, huge laugh of that there's actually like a, you know, a billion hectares of DMT trees on in Australia. <laughs> like, anyway, they're everywhere. So, that's, yeah, that's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, oh man, that's that's a very, very, very ironic, to be honest. Yeah, and that's um, that's why, like, the context of why DMT kind of landed to me was yeah. just it was just fucking everywhere, at the parties, at Bushdorfs, at psychedelic dorfs, like, you know. It was just kind of going around everywhere. Um, it's just that's the subculture that that was the plant that was growing around here, you know. Okay, fair enough. Is it something that's typically extracted from the plant, or? Yep, that's like, that's how it always okay, is. Interesting. Yep. Okay, great. Um, then I had another question that was like still kind of on the same line of like 
more basic real life things but it's how does this affect like your career in like in universities and all of that like beyond what happened with your phd right but i imagine it has a direct impact on what you're doing well yeah i mean hence sleeper right like who the fuck sleeper um no one knows really so uh and you know that's kind of a sad point and a positive point you know i think i think there's dual benefits to anonymity um but you know part of it is i can't really talk about this stuff now the irony is i was studying it very vocally and publicly at another university um and uh that was fine you know it's legitimate research um a few kind of looks and judgments uh, but at my current university, it just wouldn't really, it would, wouldn't really fly. I don't think it just, there is a, an academic integrity freedom kind of policy at the universities that kind of particularly probably for very causes like this, right? Where you are kind of guaranteed a kind of freedom to study what is important without fear of persecution. Um, but, you know, because I'm not full-time that researcher, I'm not really in that department. I'm in the art department. <laughs> so the art people, in, they just think we're kind of smoking bongs in the basement, um, you know, which which is fine, but it's it's not quite, the, quite what's happening. So anyway, I just kind of don't really mention it um, I've had a number of students who find out about it and then have long discussions with them, help point them in the right direction. And so it's, you know, a semi things like this in a, uh, only problems when they become problems, you know? So, um, yeah, just, I just think just don't be too vocal and public and they don't really want to tamper their brand. That's probably the main thing. But the irony is it's very genuine research that would probably be something they'd be really interested and curious about, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, of course. Um, and so that affects um, university, right? But then in terms of the whole sleeper persona, right, and mm -hmm. in terms of the sleeper artist, I was kind of wondering, because... so the whole artistic endeavor starts with a DMT, right? Like more or less. And with wanting to document that, right? Yep. That's pretty much where it all started. Yeah. So how does this evolve into being an artist that posts your art on like auctions and getting to Sotheby's and having like a proper artistic career where you're actually selling it for money and everything? How does those two kind of work together, I guess? Yeah, well, I think that's, you know, the super beautiful story. Um, you know, I was making these works and posting them online and really had no traction at all. I'd gotten into a gallery in Australia that someone had seen my work and thought it was amazing and said, oh my God, I want to put all this up and was printing out, like, printing out the digital works and saying there was a limited run on them and trying to make certificates and trying to basically describe digital limited prints um which you know photographers were doing as well so it was nothing super inventive but 
but it was ironic that that was kind of a manual process of what might come. Um, no one bought anything. And yeah, spent years and years trying and showing the work and putting it on websites and um, yeah, just really no one looking at it. It just really wasn't a space for anyone to look. Uh, and then, yeah, I got a, a very fortuitous message by uh, George, who's, who's in the crowd now. And uh, yeah, he, he um, gave me a chance of a lifetime, man. And he said, I'd, I'd love to buy a piece. I think you've got great work, but you know, you should, I'll buy it if you put it on Solana. And I had, yeah, just put some works on Rarible and was just starting to see the space unfold. Um, I had no clue about anything. Just, you know, was really trying to just get my head around the very, very first steps of the whole space. And then, yeah, um, George bought the first piece. Bell bought the second piece. And, um, yeah, then we decided to throw some works on Holoplex and, and uh, start auctioning works off. And you know, it's just been a really beautiful, organic, truly a really organic kind of um, process over the past year and a half. It's felt really like every step has been earned and every step has been exactly kind of one step more than the last step. There's never been a really gigantic leap, except for these points that you look back on, you go, wow, that was a really gigantic leap. Um, but even in the context, they feel like this very natural unfolding. You know, this said, this is at a rapid pace. And what I feel is um, been so lucky in this space to, you know, have support and have a chance at kind of going out and, and rocking it. Um, but yeah, you know, something like Sotheby's was a really cool opportunity that kind of, that feels like a really big milestone, you know, but yeah, there's, it's all nuances that actually kind of make it just still just one step. <laughs> I was going to mention Sotheby's because I don't, because I'm not an artist, right? So I don't, I recognize it as like a big name, but I don't know how much being, like being invited by Sotheby's, I guess, is a big deal as an artist or not? Uh, look, I think, you know, I think it was a really big, big deal for me. Um, certainly felt like a kind of a leap for the Web3 space to hop into the traditional art world space. I think that search for legitimacy is something that's been desired and is will always be kind of desired for the for the NFT space. We do kind of feel like we're in a bubble, and but but only a bubble because other people are playing other games that aren't connected. But then when they do start connecting, you kind of start feeling like, all oh, right, this is the same thing that they're doing over there. It's just we're on a different medium. We're on a we're actually ahead of the tech curve. Um, and even I saw today or yesterday, the Sotheby's metaverse has just come out where they've developed a whole new marketplace that will now house highly curated top tier artists, um, you know, with much lower percentage fees and much easier trading and 
you know, so it's going to be uh, an arm of um, their traditional auction house, uh, which which they were still figuring out when I went when we did the auction for Hong Kong Sotheby's and for down the rabbit hole. So even over a couple of months, you can see their their rapid kind of transformation of of building infrastructure to support this new emerging fine art space, you know. That's pretty cool. I mean, does that give you, does that allow you to have contacts with Sotheby's and kind of be somewhat at the forefront of this new expansion? Or are you more of a passenger on that, on that journey? Mm, that's a good thing. I, they certainly aren't inviting me to their lunches, you know. <laughs> Um, but I think I'm in their, in their kind of field of view, you know, um, I'm sure this, I'm sure they're taking notes on artists who are in the space and, and working and, um, and so it was a really successful bridge over and a successful auction and everything went really well and they were really super happy with it. So it was a, it was a good outcome, um. I, I think this this is quite a competitive space. And if that's the top tier, you know, these guys are selling, you know, $50 million Picassos. Um, and then they're trying to sell, you know, a $5,000 NFT. You know, they've got, um, it's just a very different league of of art selling. So I think suddenly, so yeah, I think, you know, it's a, a, um, a very premium pool that would take quite a long time to, you know, you'd have to be dead, I think, to, to make an impact over in Sotheby's maybe. Yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, you'd have to be dead to make an impact as a, a very enjoyable prospect as an artist, I imagine. Wow, well, that's the, uh, the irony, right? Well, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, that's how it goes, right? So, and so like there's that how you reconcile art and uh and documenting it was there like how is it how much is it still science-based do you think because originally it's very much for a phd thesis right i met like how much did your approach change to documenting your experiences when you stopped having it in the form of a phd yeah i think a lot of it was just um, re relaxing the kind of rigidity of what was needed for the PhD, you know. So the PhD was all about complete uh, replica snapshots of what happened and any variation or wiggle room out of that was kind of a failure or, you know, or incorrect. Um, so that level of rigidity was kind of loosened and, you know, even over the past year and a half, I've kind of, through the past couple of series that I've released, each one you can actually start feeling the kind of rigidity keep releasing. But at the same time, like I mentioned before, there's, there's this quality that maybe it's more truthful through the, through the fiction, you know, or through the through the um through a relaxed approach 
maybe more comes through subconsciously or maybe more comes through in the play of it rather than trying to capture this, the, you know, I often think of the relationship of like surface and essence. You know, so on the surface, something looks like something, but really the thing that you're actually talking about um, is often this essence that is invisible and you could, can't document it other than maybe through a whole range of tactics that weren't actually there, but it actually feels closer to being there. There's a number of works that I've done that have that quality where it's like, this feels like I'm in a DMT trip, even though it's actually my DMT was slightly different than that. You know? um, and so, yeah, there's like a play that comes through that's, that's enabled a lot more, a lot more expression and craftsmanship to kind of come through in that pursuit. So was it somewhat like, did it help you to get out of that? The, I mean, I, I guess it did like help to get out of the rigid mindset of it has to be scientific. It has to be a PhD. It has to like all these restrictions, right? Yeah, that's right. And I, I think this is where privatized scientific research comes in. You know, um, you know, I have long plans for Sleeper and I have a lot of cool things I want to do. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff that kind of can, can come out of this. But, you know, in a university context, there's a lot of rules and red tape and you know, things you can't do. Whereas something I'd love to do is, you know, fund an art trip for five grand or something and, you know, take an artist into Peru and you know, take ayahuasca with shamans and then create artworks of that and document the journey and the process in a kind of more, you know, free-flowing kind of way um, that might actually yield better results than would happen in a lab that had all of the right approval and scientific documentation and um, the rigidity. So, you know, I think funding, you know, privatised funding that this underground research angle is kind of what art has always been about and what art does really well um, is it has a pure pursuit but kind of bends the rules. And, um, yeah, I think, I think that's where... I think that it can actually yield even better results. And the, the proof is in the pudding, you know, psychedelic research was pushed underground for the past 30, 40 years. It's slowly, you know, there's a little bit coming out now, but not much, but fuck man, if you look online, you know, there is just complete crisp documentation of every single facet of the whole thing, psychological or pharmacological or botanical, um, everything's been documented in high detail with no funding, just by passionate people on the internet. Um, and we've done a lot more progress than using the mainstream, you know, badge of legitimacy. It's, I think that's going, I think that is already wearing out the, what, where, what is legitimate and where's, where is something legitimate? I think the truth just comes through no matter what. So, 
Okay, I think I'm I'm realizing right now that we've spoken so much about like all of these experiences and all your art and everything, and there are questions that I typically ask that I just haven't been able to hit, and um, so like yeah, you were mentioning there's so many things you want to do with Sleeper, and I was gonna ask like what exactly what is like what are the next steps because you can continue documenting and everything and and making your art, but what do you what do you want to achieve I guess because making that art is like beautiful but you maybe you want to have more reach maybe you have like a further goal like what is i don't know what maybe what is sleeper's end goal yeah i think um you know i i think there's immediate goals immediate like short medium term goals and there's really long long goals you know like Short and medium term is a very, very clear path to what Sleeper needs to do. Um, and it's to kind of continue the quality climb within the existing infrastructure that's here. You know, so I think uh, somewhere like AOTM on is probably a really good uh, goal to, to aim towards. I think some really, um, you know, uh, prominent collectors would be great to have. I think a more midterm goal would be to be in museums. You know, I would love to be kind of having works locked away so, uh, you know, so they kind of really last the test of time. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I, I don't know. I think I'm really locked into the JPEG game. Like uh, that's what I want to do most is, you know, I don't really want to expand the thing out and spread wide. I want it to be really deep in a pinpoint way. Um, Cause nothing else is actually what my passion is. It's just kind of like I, I mentioned the sleeper world recently. Um, and I think that's really cool. I think, you know, but it's really actually just a bit of fun to like, you know, put some sleeper works on clothing items or maybe make some like really cool, sweet abstract figurines or, you know, just to kind of play with the sleeper world a little bit more. Um, but it's not really my goal. Um, I, yeah, I want to make works that like are, are game changing. And so depth is is the key in in the jpeg game making them extremely premium making them really really uh important socially and culturally and scientifically perhaps and then long long term you know i think sleeper whether it's in the sleeper incarnation or um as something else you know i, I would like to develop a, a hallucination research center like I want to develop a space that is able to hire artists or to fund artists or have artist residencies um, and to begin to build up a repository that is building out these maps of hyperspace. That's what I, that's what I would love to do um, as this kind of in-between art, culture, science, you know, 
but you know one person can't do the job sleeper would be an artist at the center um, but there are many other wonderful artists in the space who are doing such amazing work that yeah they should you know i i think they should have a redefined goal and part of it is also then to communicate out to everyone else what our goal should be what type of work should we be promoting what type of work should we be cheering on and encouraging you know we can do anything we want what do we choose to want and you know, I'm not saying everyone has to do this but it's like I would like to promote that as an arm or an option in the pool of options out there that this is also a really cool legitimate angle of course I love like watercolor abstract flower paintings as well like I truly do you know I love um, just all sorts of art as cultural consumption but I think having a mission in the art space is some is a kind of um, pinpoint, like a uh, a really uh, niche missing detail. I think there's a, a mission missing in for for some artists to to sp- spend uh, their time on. So so yeah, to create a container and a space and a place that that mission can be that we basically we're the bungee cord experts you know and we develop bungee cords to wrap around these artists and then we kick them off into the sixth dimension and then they and they come back with uh, a napkin and some scribbled drawings fuck yeah <laughs> that's like uh, i mean that's a lot and it's really cool i think the whole idea of a place to research it is it sounds like a, a very big mission and like on that line of the the artist's mission and everything i was i was wondering if this was a fairly lonely mission for you because not that many well you're the only artist i know who's doing this right and yeah it's kind of like are you to your knowledge are you the only one is there someone that you can share this journey with in a more personal way than your art or not that your art isn't personal because that's definitely not the way but in the sense that you can really interact with them and share with them and some someone that can relate to that i guess yeah actually um you know there's there's a there i certainly am not the only one because there is a visionary art subculture you know like alex gray is a wonderful beautiful artist who he did like the tool album cover and this beautiful tunnel of eyes and um uh you know, there, there is a, even from the 60s, right, there was like psychedelic artists who were like getting super inspired and then kind of making this type of imagery that had this fluidity and, you know, so there have been artists around for a long time. There are a number of visionary artists out there who do kind of espouse these ideas. They do really kind of um, uh, shout them out that, hey, I want to, I'm documenting these visions as well and I'm taking there's complex hallucinations and geometry and I'm documenting them in my paintings and my artworks. So there are other artists out there who are doing it. Um, uh, But yeah, it's definitely a kind of solo mission, right? Like, but to be honest, most it's, it's always been a solo mission. Um, And, you know, the PhD was just like this crazy solo mission that was just 
I was just locked off from the world for a long time and I just went as far as I could down this rabbit hole as I as I really could before I just started really getting yeah just losing you know connection to to important things so until it became unhealthy you know you can research too much and go too too far down rabbit holes like that um but uh so it's always been a kind of solo mission so it's not that big a deal for it to be too solo but man i feel like so supported in this community like man i just feel like so loved and so appreciative to just be with homies and to hang out and you know I feel so cheered on every kind of like peace and yeah it's such a wonderful experience I never I really never never feel alone in this space um but yeah building that kind of research center thing it's probably a bit too far down the the risk curve of um of NFTs at least which is already at the extreme end of risk curve. Yeah, when we're talking about the far end of risk curve while toying around with JPEGs <laughs> on the internet. Yeah, bro. It's, it's like, quite fucking funny. Off the chart risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the irony. Oh, man. It's, I mean, it's it's definitely true. I mean, not only JPEGs, but also um, arguably legal activities. Um, <laughs> so, yep. like... Yeah. Um, are you ever worried about that, actually, on the, like, legal side of things? Yeah, I think, you know, most of it is, like, possession is the is the offence, you know. They'd, they'd have a hard time. I'd just say I'm lying. I am lying, you know, for anyone watching. Like, all of this was made up. So, you know, but, yeah, it's possession. Possession's the key. So just sort your shit out and... And, and then be free, you know, and, and voice the thing that's important. Okay, fair enough. I mean, as long as you can, like, not be screwed by that, I guess that's what matters when it's not, when it's with good intentions. Um, then one question that I feel is, like, really important, and you've probably been asked this so many times, but maybe in a different way, it's that, well, people have definitely asked you, and you've probably already wondered, like, is this just all in your head? Is this just like molecules hitting certain receptors in your mind and it fucks everything over and you start seeing things? So how do you reconcile like that question, which you can't really answer, I guess, with the idea of like the immense depth of worlds and space that you can explore? Yeah, no, it's a really legitimate question, man. Like, you know, actually my supervisor said exactly that question halfway through the PhD <laughs> and um, it was exactly this. She said, uh, so, you know, what if it's not real? And I said, yeah, but it really happened. It really happened. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the implication is. I don't know what, where those places are i don't know what the beings are but i really did see a place i really did see a being i really did talk with them i really did all that but i don't know what that means now um and it's really key like kind of cognitive shift where you just go back to being truthful about what your experience was 
and not needing to overlay what that then means on top. And that's a, that's a completely truthful point of view, you know, and that's the mystery, right? Like you just retain authenticity and truthfulness in saying that this really happened. I really did get stuck in the loop. I really did see this tunnel of colored lights and eyes. Um, but I don't know if that's another dimension or if I don't know if that's in my head or I don't know what it is. And even at the end of the day, it would be very fascinating to find out why that happens, even if it is just, just all in your head, you know? Just even asking the question, I realized that couldn't, couldn't you technically argue that everything you do in life is kind of just all in your head potentially in a way? Oh, for sure, yeah. There's a real epistemological kind of problem with that type of thinking about, you know, getting to the bottom of truth. And it's a real, it's a common knot you can just get caught on in, um, you know, you'll never be able to prove anything, right? Like you can't even prove that if we're seeing the same colour red, like, let alone if I'm seeing fucking dimension number 12, like, talk about red. Like, it's the same problem. Um, and so, actually, we kind of just live with those problems and just kind of get on with it. Um, sometimes they're really important to dig into. Other times they feel unhelpful to the general cause that you're on. And so it's just, it's just probably navigating that a little bit, you know, but yeah, certainly man, like, you know, everything, everything we do is, you know, one of the trippy thoughts you can have is there's really no, there's no world out there. There's only ever a, a reconstruction in your brain, you know, like the, oh, the light gets hit your eyes and it's converted into an electrical signal. It's, it's reconstructed in the brain. We don't ever experience the external world. We ex only experience your construction via the machinery, via the computer. You know, like you're only ever watching a live stream on YouTube, the YouTube screen of your mind. Um, you never kind of get out of it and see the real thing. And so then, you know, then it really helps to understand about beliefs, you know. So if you're in a shitty mood, or life's terrible, or everyone's against you, and you're the victim, and, you know, then guess what? No birds will be chirping when you walk down the street. Uh, but if actually there's magic, like, woven throughout everything, and suddenly you notice the ray of sun hitting your arm, then you hear the birds, and there's a beautiful sunset, suddenly there's magic everywhere. Um, you know, and that's you're seeing a different world. Two people are seeing a different world based on their kind of internal belief system. So, so yeah, it's, yeah, it's all kind of interestingly complex and, and messy. Does, is it ever a struggle for you? Cause I imagine, cause I ask that question and that question already has an endless amount of possibilities that can probably be terrifying because, well, you know, that, that fear of the unknown doesn't, does it ever get over overwhelming? Do you get answers to them? Do you just manage to set them aside and understand that you'll never have an answer? How does that, how do you get over all of that? 
Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And like you, you know, people have killed themselves over the concepts of infinity. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, you know, that's the representation of, of that infinite kind of scalability. There's no end to the, to the limit or to the concept or, um, and yeah, I think you just have to kind of at some point accept the mystery and accept the limitations of the hardware, um, that you've got and you kind of round off the edges, right? Like that's the point of infinity is at some point you just pick some really big number, but actually the concept of, of infinity is that it is, you know, so many bigger, so many more times bigger than even that number that you just thought of. Um, I find, I find that stuff really interesting. The kind of, yeah, exploration of concepts like, like infinity. Yeah. I think you should live with it, man. Yeah. The, con yeah. the, the concept of infinity really, uh, it just reminds me of a math class where you do, when you're studying the limit of something, as you go towards the as you go towards infinity right and it's like yeah a lot of people struggle with the idea that it's not just that choose one million or two or ten million it's really like there's always plus one each time correct that's right that's the key plus one you know and and actually it's it's uh it's um the description of an of an algorithm, right? Like of an, of a, of an engine that, uh, it's the description of the general pattern that is, is what it is. It's not actually this fixed thing. It's the plus one. That is what the description is. And, um, you know, on a lot of DMT trips, I'll see a lot of it's kind of like these geometric grids and geometric structures, but they have a fractal nature to them. And you, a lot of uh, Ralph Abrahams is a big, was a mathematical kind of genius of UCLA. And um, he was very adamant that uh, there was a fractal, he was kind of peering into the fractal geometry of nature itself through through dmt and that you know so fractals are kind of a, a geometric mathematical description of infinity that's seen in lots of different shapes and contexts in nature um and yeah so so when you kind of so actually you you build a kind of cultivate a relationship with this with that with infinite and, and fractalness um through through these experiences as well yeah that's i mean the fractal side of things is always even when you look at the mathematical representations it's always fairly like surprising to see the i don't know what the there's that name of the really famous fractal yeah the mandelbrot like, if you ever think that yeah that one it's exactly said that one itself is just so surprising mm. Yeah. To just observe, right? Well, yeah. And when you go look at Mandelbulb, there's like free software that you can look through. So Mandelbrot is 2D. It's just like a pixel. It's like looking at, yeah. you know, a monkey down picture versus like um, a, uh, 
like a hyper real 3D render of the monkey DAO, right? Like, but, but when you see that, when you actually navigate in 3D through those fractal environments, oh, fuck, man, that's some crazy shit. Like, you know, and that's just a math, that's just like a math equation that's converting into those 3D virtual representations, like those 3D environments. Um, and I often think, oh, when my maths teacher with like an old white, you know, moustache was like banging on the chalkboard with a, you know, with a duster saying how important these like equations were. It was like, oh, that's what you were trying to say. Like there was these insane landscapes that he, he didn't have the tools to help really visualize the beauty that he, he could kind of see of those, those descriptions of, of uh, patterns and relationships and um, but yeah anyway M- Mandel all that fractal stuff is is very 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 interesting and very on point yeah looking I mean dude it's fucking crazy just because if you visualize that while on a trip it must be just on such another level and I remember reading through your article that you do use 3D for your art right yeah definitely how do you like what software do you use how do you even manage to to like get to get it into three dimensions yeah i think with with um well i'll use like i used to use cinema 4d then i was using blender now i was using unreal gaming engine i was doing texturing and shading in substance and um across a whole bunch of software uh then you know, drawing things in in Illustrator and other, you know, going through Photoshop and shit like that. But yeah, I think the 3D stuff, you know, having a good general understanding of geometry and space, spatiality, maybe spatialness, you know, um, you know, enabled, yeah, enables you to just kind of start constructing spaces in a really interesting manner. You know, there's a really beautiful quote from um, Frank Grary, who's the uh, arch- super famous architect. Um, but when they were saying, oh, how do you think of the spaces and the architecture that you build? He's like, oh, man, interesting spaces everywhere. You know, like, look at this waste paper basket. It's filled with trash. It's not really interesting at all. But imagine all the empty space inside of that that waste paper basket that is incredible forms that you would kind of never organically think of because you've just been kind of conditioned in a way of thinking about space as a bunch of cubes and spheres and maybe it's a dome and but actually if you kind of break out of a lot of containers and beliefs that you've got about something and you reapproach it um, sometimes in the complete opposite way, then you can find some really uh, unique angles onto things. So a, a lot of work for me is about like exploring spatialness. Yeah. In really unique ways, looking inside things and under rocks and inside rocks, you know, like, inside a rock is such a cool concept that would be an amazingly beautiful cave um so you know but then but it's all triggered from these kind of 
experiences of strange of strange space you know and then you kind of take that as inspiration and then kind of use real world concepts and technical shit in software to try to try to wrangle it out you know like i'm a big believer in like i've used software for so long like it's just it's like flying a plane now um i'm so far down the rabbit hole in terms of software that you know i'm doing these little tricks that are like fucking yeah just deep deep off in the left hand corner of the the menu (laughs) you know like it's some some strange technique that I have a deep theory and belief for of why I'm doing that and why that works. Um, but, but yeah, the software itself is like critical to, it's like your pen, you know, like your, it's like the pen that you draw with. It's uh, just another tool for visualization. Yeah. My mind is mind mildly fucked at the end of all this. It, it's crazy. I mean, I don't, because I see your artwork and I don't even manage to imagine how I'd go about creating that on like Blender of all things, because it's, it's just not that easy. How how far down the creative process do you go on Blender? Like, do you just create the shapes? Do you give them the color and the texture? What, how, yeah, how far down do you create the lighting? Mm, that's, yeah, it's good questions. Like, you know, so 3D is very helpful for a lot of things that are a pain in the ass to calculate manually. Um, it's great for calculating shadows. It's great for calculating correct perspective. Um, you know, some recent works that I've done recently, it's just a slight angle, like you're looking at a street scene and then you might just twist the scene a little bit, stand off on the road, a little bit of an angle. And then you might fisheye the lens a little bit so it's a little bit bulged. And you might put a, a light, get, cast some shadows over here and another light. And, you know, you're setting up these kind of like scenes, these theatrical scenes, um, a stage for these characters to kind of, um, kind of dance on top of. Then you block out the general gist of those shapes try and figure out a lot of compositional problems. Um, but yeah, I'm leveraging the kind of benefit of 3D, but I hate how 3D looks. I just, it just looks kind of like off and like a computer thing. And strangely how the brain works, um, there's all these like negatives and then double negatives of how the brain calculates what's real and what's not real. And, you know, there's the uncanny Valley, right? So like if you tried in 3d to make these things look really real, they keep, they go up the curve for ages, but then it's like, Oh man, it's just still so far off. Like my brain is just screaming. um, Not real. Even though you've got, correct textures and the lighting and it's 3d and it's shading and like everything's kind of right but it's just off and it might be one percent off right but instead if you actually took it to be 20 percent off and like so that's why i you know super flat is really helpful um 
because what it actually does is it releases the tension in the brain to try to tell you it's real. So, okay, I'm settling into that this isn't real. But then the double negative trick is that actually everything's calculated correctly. This is real. This is just a filter like someone took a photo on their phone and then put some filter over the top like on Instagram or like their iPhone thing. And so actually it is real, even though it's less real. And you're actually, you can fall deeper into the world by going further away from trying to satisfy what the biology of vision is just like a fucking supercomputer at. Like, man, you don't want to like go up against the eyeball. Like it'll just cream you every time. So you just, you actually try and skirt around it and hack through another angle. And um, yeah, that's, and then the use of color as well, you know, so there's all these assumptions with color, like a darker shadow behind something will indicate that it's further behind. If it's lighter or more saturated, it will be closer. You know, like mountains in the distance will look less saturated, more gray because of the kind of atmosphere and mist in the air. Um, but what if you did the opposite to that? What happens then? Or what if you did, um, three correct shadows and then two incorrect shadows? What happens then? Um, so there's all, there's infinite options in what you can do with any one image. You know, someone could give me an app, a picture of an apple and there's like so many theoretical um, kind of like tactics you could use on that apple that could just fuck with your mind like and not just like optical illusion stuff but like get under your skin you know like that's one of the things I really hope for with sleepers is that they like get under your skin like there's these tags in them that like you remember them later sometimes I'm even looking at the work and then I'm looking at it, but I'm not even looking at the screen anymore. I'm like looking at, at the roof or like my foot, like, but I'm looking, I'm still looking at it. Like, I don't even know what's going on. Um, sometimes there's this vibe, this vibration in the work that's like resonating at a really strange level. Um, yeah. So it's just, you know, there's, there's technical tactics that you can employ at a software level. And then there are kind of biological tactics that you can employ that you should have an understanding of what happens in the brain with vision and what the machinery, what is happening in cognition, how are people thinking, what are the assumptions, what are the blocks, what are the ways to get around things. Um, so there's a wetware level, then there's a software level. And then, but that's still just going to keep the artwork in the realm of this space. So what you want to do is have the magic level or the DMT stuff as this kind of like infusion to just help kick it off to the kind of, to like a really, to, to the next level, you know. And I think it's that triple combo that's like, 
kind of starting to showcase some serious work, you know, that, that could, could go up against, um, I don't know, could go up against, you know, yeah, um, it could be well remembered, you know. Yeah, this is, it's crazy. I, I'm very, uh, sorry, I have to cut this off now because no I have class in five minutes. Yeah, and, let's do it. And my room is like five minutes away. <laughs> um, I just, I, I'd love to continue this discussion longer though. Um, so yeah, I mean, typically now, like great time for you to like shout anyone, anything, like literally anything you want to say that's like unprompted go for it now yeah man look i'm just so thankful for everyone like i honestly can't express how much i appreciate every you know like like and not that i want more likes but it's like man i just really feel everything and um yeah i just really want to make everyone proud you know i don't want to i want it to be very authentic and a real mission you know so yeah sleep is sleep is for the people <laughs> i think Odie you said that Okay. Awesome. Well, with that being said, um, well, thanks everyone for joining again, um, especially to the ones that come here recurringly. I appreciate it a lot. Um, next one is on Thursday with Gaius, actually, for those of you who know him. Um, and, uh, oh yeah. And so there's the tweet up top. If you want to grab person to novelty by sleeper, get the address to me within the next two three hours because otherwise i won't count you in you will it's limited um i meant as many as there are people who request it sleeper thank you so much for having answered quickly and, and made time for this thanks and, man i really appreciate you appreciate it yeah thanks a lot and yeah on that note um it's uh thanks all for listening and talk to you another time